0: When people think of the Reformation, they often think of the Reformers. And when people think of the Reformers, they often think of individuals like Martin Luther or John Calvin or John Knox or William Tyndale. One of the lesser known Reformers that I was reminded of about two weeks ago is a man by the name of Theodore Beza. He helped Calvin begin the work at the Academy of Geneva which was a school for ministers, and he helped Calvin train up ministers who were going to be ministering, many of whom would be missionaries and so on. He was the rector of the academy, and after Calvin went home to be with the Lord in 1564, he assumed a leadership role in Geneva, not only at the school, but within the church and within the society. Now, he is one of the lesser-known reformers, but there is a quotation that's often applied to him that is somewhat well-known. And one rendering of that quotation goes like this. It belongs to the church of God to receive blows rather than to inflict them. But she, speaking of the church, is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Now that latter part of the quote... Speaking of the church being an anvil that has worn out many hammers, speaks to the enduring nature of Christ's people in the world, Christ's church, despite hammer blow, after hammer blow of persecution. Whether it's been in the early days of the New Testament church, whether it's been those Jewish leaders, or whether it was Roman emperors whether it was somebody like Nero or Diocletian or somebody earlier like Trajan and so on, there have been hammer blows after hammer blows, communist governments, socialist governments, Islamists. So many have attempted to try to erase the church and like an anvil that has stood its ground, as it were, the blows have come from hammers, but the church has stood nonetheless. And she still stands. Well, you might say that one of the initial hammer strikes is seen right here in Acts chapter 5. Earlier, back in Acts chapter 4, we saw that Peter and John were arrested. Why were they arrested? What was their crime? Well, their crime for which they were arrested was being used by God to heal a man who, for about 40 years, was lame from his mother's womb. Wicked thing they did, didn't they? And not only to that, to add to their crimes, they were preaching the resurrection of Christ and forgiveness of sins in his name. And so what happened? If you went back to Acts chapter 4, you would see that they essentially got let off with a warning. Acts chapter 4, verse 18. The Jewish religious leadership said that they were no more to preach or teach or speak in Jesus' name. And then you see, in verses 19 through 20, that basically John and Peter, they were the two ones who were arrested. They basically say, we can't do that. They basically say, you decide. You make the call whether you think it's better for us to obey you rather than God. But as for us, we cannot help but speak of the things that we've seen and heard. And I mentioned to you then when we were going through it that there was a little bit of a sense that what that encounter was, that initial kind of conflict, it was a kind of preview of a forthcoming one. Well, here in our passage today is the forthcoming one. And I think one of the things that we will all find, if you are in Christ, today is a good reminder for you that a Christian life is not equaled to an untroubled existence. Right? It's not like, you know, I just want to leave all my troubles behind, so I am coming to Jesus for an untroubled existence. Christianity is not the equivalent of a bed of roses. It's not the equivalent of a bowl of cherries. As a matter of fact, when you come to Christ, oftentimes it will introduce a whole set of conflicts that you wouldn't have otherwise had. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he had served as a pastor in Wales uh, in the 1930s. He served there before serving in Westminster in London later on for the better part of his ministry. Uh, But he told the story of a man who had recently come to Christ. He knew the man when he didn't know Christ. And he said when this man came to know Christ, he was completely changed. And one of the ways in which he changed was that all of a sudden not only did he have faith in Christ... But he had an affection for the people of God and the things that were going on at the local church. So he wanted to be at the things that were happening at church. So he goes to prayer meeting and one night he comes home from prayer meeting and his wife greeted him angrily. And she asked, you've been to that prayer meeting? He said, yes. And she told him, I would rather that they carry you home drunk from the working men's drinking club than to see you coming home from this prayer meeting. I mean, that was a problem he wouldn't have otherwise had. He wouldn't have been at prayer meeting apart from Christ. But he goes to the prayer meeting, he comes home, and Christ was the variable that introduced the conflict. Not to give away the story, a pretty amazing story, she does end up coming to know Christ. So that's a a neat thing that Martin Lloyd-Jones had shared. But you might ask the question, can Christ bring about such conflict in even the closest of relationships? Yes, Jesus said that would happen. Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 through 37. You might say, okay, wait a minute. There's got to be a way of escaping it. Maybe, maybe, if we are maximally winsome, then maybe we can avoid conflict with anybody over Christ. And I would tell you, if your definition of being maximally winsome includes capitulating to lies, being indifferent to the truth, living like the world lives, and putting Christ to the side and being silent about him, yes, the world will love you as its own. But if your pursuit of being winsome and kind and gentle and so on is contoured and molded by Jesus Christ, then how could you hope to avoid conflict at some level? Think of what Jesus himself said. Jesus told his disciples, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John chapter 15, verse 20. Jesus also said, Matthew chapter 10, verse 25, It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, that's what they call Jesus, right? remember the antagonists of his day saying he cast out demons by Beelzebub so Jesus is basically saying if they've called me Beelzebub how much more will they call those of his household the examples could go on the apostle paul wanted his young son in the faith Timothy to know and thus to communicate to the church second timothy chapter 3 verse 12 yes and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution You're not supposed to suffer persecution for being rude or unnecessarily offensive or unkind or harsh or arrogant or condescending. If you suffer persecution for that, it's because you're being rude or arrogant or harsh or condescending. But if you just love Christ and you just stand for what Jesus has said and you say he is the only way, he is the truth and the life, there's no other way to forgiveness with God apart from him. You will experience at some level conflict. And today's passage is a good reminder for us of what to do when that happens. I want to tell you, Acts chapter 5, what we're studying right now, is relevant for every Christian, every true follower of Christ. You are not attending a kind of weekend conference on how to cultivate useless skills, like how to touch your tongue with your nose. You know, let's teach you a fictional language so that you can understand how to communicate with other, you know, certain sects of fictional fandom. This is not useless knowledge. This is extremely relevant for every one of you who are in Christ Jesus. And you're going to see there's a lot more to learn along the way. We'll create some context as we jump in. We begin in Acts chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, where we read, Then the high priest rose up. And all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. Or as the footnote in the New King James says, jealousy. Every other translation um, sees that as the idea of what's being said here. Verse 18. And laid hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So don't forget the context. Where we were last week was verses 12 through 16. So the religious leadership was most immediately likely hearing of the miracles that the apostles were doing. Remember the miracles the miracles were confirmations, attestations from the living God that these apostles were indeed his authorized messengers and the message that they were preaching was actually a message that was authorized and confirmed by God. That's not only for that generation, that's also for us. So that we could have confidence in the word of God that we are studying. So they're hearing about this? Acts 5 verse 12, the apostles are doing miracles. They are likely hearing what we saw in Acts 5.13, that even unbelievers who didn't join the church looked at the church and respected them and esteemed them. They saw the integrity that they were living out in the local church and so on. Other contexts could be given. They saw how believers were being added to the church regularly, Acts chapter 5, verse 14, and how people were coming, not only from Jerusalem, but you see this in verses 15 and 16, people are coming from surrounding cities so that the sick are being lined on the streets so that the apostles might heal them. Now the religious leadership, they're hearing this, and what is the reaction? Look at our text, verse 17. Then the high priest rose up. Most likely Caiaphas. He was the official high priest at this time. You can see John chapter 11 verse 49. Though Annas was like the high priest emeritus. So he rises up and the expression rose up connotes the idea that he and those with him probably thought enough is enough. We can't have this going on any longer. They couldn't just sit by. And if you were to say, why did they feel like they can no longer sit by? The text tells you they were filled with indignation. Or as the footnote says in the King James and the NASB, ESV, other renderings will say what this word means in the Greek here. Jealousy. They were filled with jealousy. Because people weren't flocking from like miles around to come hear their man-made traditions. Tell us all the things we can't do on the Sabbath, even though the Word of God doesn't say it. We we just want to hear that. That wasn't happening. But people were flocking from miles around because they kept hearing people are getting healed. People who couldn't walk, people who couldn't see, people with all these different ailments, they're being healed by the messengers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostles of Christ. They're doing the things that Jesus was doing. And the Sadducees didn't like that because they saw their influence being undercut. So if this kept happening, they're going to lose influence. The apostles are going to gain influence. So they are not only jealous of losing what they thought they had, they're envious of what the apostles did have. So jealousy, they're fearful of losing the little bit of respect and so on that they had from the people, whatever measure of that there was. Envious, because they're seeing the people esteem the apostles, and they want to hear them. And I want to remind you of something I think is very important. We're reminded of it here in Acts chapter 5. Be reminded of the dangerous path of jealousy and envy. The word of God is replete with warnings as to where this leads. Look where jealousy and envy led Cain. What did he do? He killed his brother, Abel. He was envious of him. Look what it led Joseph's brothers to do. They were going to kill him at first, but instead they sold him into slavery. Look what jealousy and envy led Saul, the king of Israel. What did it lead him to do? It led him to multiple attempts at murdering David. Jesus himself, we're told, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 18, and Mark chapter 15, verse 10, was delivered up by the chief priests because of envy. So what was driving them was not some passion for religious orthodoxy. What was driving them at the end of the day was envy. In Acts chapter 13, verse 45, we're told that when the Jews saw that Paul and Barnabas preaching to the multitudes in Antioch, they were filled with envy, and they rose up a persecution against them. And here in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, we see the religious leadership is filled with envy. And what are they going to do? They are going to imprison the apostles. And you're going to see later on, Lord willing, next week, they're going to have them beaten. And what was driving it? Envy was driving it. Do you see what jealousy and envy can do? James um, in his epistle says that any logic or so-called wisdom that leads to envy is devilish. So if you come around like some sort of rationale, like, you know, it's pretty rational for me to be like envious of this person because of such and such. Well, any kind of rationale has a kind of demonic backing to it. He goes on and he says, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are. James chapter three, verse 16. And somebody might say, OK, but maybe I can keep my envy secret. I just, won't, I just won't show it. It'll just be like in my heart and mind, but nobody will know it. Proverbs 14, verse 30 says, Envy is rottenness to the bones. You're hurting yourself when you envy. Nobody wins with envy. Let me remind you early on in the message. Right now, here's the good news. According to Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, Jesus was the victim of envy, if you will, so that you could be free from it. Galatians 1, verse 14. Titus 2, verse 14. He's redeeming his people. He's redeemed his people from every lawless deed. He sets you free from this present evil age. So, when envy pops up in your mind, in whatever form it may take, maybe you're tempted to envy another person's successes. Maybe you're tempted to envy another person's possessions. Maybe you're tempted to envy another person's health, or looks, or abilities, or circumstances, or family, or children, whatever it might be, this is my encouragement to you. Remember where it led Cain. Remember where it led Saul. Remember where it led others. Remember where others led Jesus and now see the intruder that envy is and then say, you know what? I don't want to even go near it. Jesus died so that I wouldn't be bound by envy, so that envy wouldn't have dominion over me. Flee from it and rejoice in the spirit given power to do those things. And I would add one other bit of pastoral counsel to that. By way of practical instruction, when you're tempted to envy, don't envy. Love. Love does not envy 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. If you're tempted to envy someone, like, I can't believe he has that. I can't believe she has that. I'll tell you what you should do. Why don't you pray for them? Love instead of envying. Say, I'm going to pray for I'm going to pray for their good. I'm going to pray that God would work in their life. I'm going to pray that God would continue to use them in great ways or whatever it might be. Don't envy love. Replace envy with prayer that is desirous to see God do good to that person and to be glorified in that person. All right, back to the text. What did the Jewish religious leadership of the day, the council, the Supreme Court of Israel, if you will, the Sanhedrin, what did they do? They, according to the text, laid hands on the apostles. Not in a good way. (laughs) They, They weren't commissioning them to ministry. They had already been commissioned. And they weren't laying hands on them to heal them but instead to put them in the common prison, where just the common, prison, common prisoners would go. This common prison, likely a place where prisoners would be put until they were sentenced by the council. So all types of notorious offenders can be there. Could you imagine the apostles? What, what is their crime now? Again, it's healing people in Jesus' name. It's preaching Christ, and in Christ the resurrection, and they're getting thrown in the common prison where notorious offenders or common criminals can be placed. There they are. And it seems as though the Jewish religious leadership wanted to flex their muscles and they wanted everyone to know who was in charge. The irony is, God would very quickly demonstrate that He was the one who was in charge. So the plan of the council was this get get the apostles, put them in prison overnight, and then in the morning, we are going to have a council, we're going to have court. But as we'll come to find, God had very different plans. Look at verses 19 and 20. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. This is great. So my first pastoral comment on these verses, this is great. It's great for a number of reasons. First, First reason is this. God sent an angel to open the prison doors. And you might say, why did God send an angel to open prison doors? I mean, you go on in the book of Acts, God could use a whole bunch of things. To get Paul out of prison, he used an earthquake one time. To get Paul out of prison another time, he used Paul's nephew, overhearing about a plot against Paul and so on. So God could use a whole bunch of different ways to get his people out of prison, but he used an angel here. You say, why did he use an angel? We're not told explicitly, but I'll tell you what I think. Remember who we're dealing with here. Luke just told us in verse 17 that the Sadducees were those who were alongside of the high priest. And who were the Sadducees? Remember in Acts chapter 23, verse 8, we're told that they were those who did not believe in angels or spirits. So you can kind of see, I think, here a little bit of a divine rebuke to their false doctrine. They don't believe in angels. Doesn't mean they're not real. Just by the way, that's a good reminder for all of us here, right? Just because you don't believe something is real doesn't mean it's not real, right? Just because you don't believe, let's say, and I hope everybody in this room would believe, that Jesus rose from the grave, even if you didn't believe it, doesn't make it not true. There's, of course, an abundance of evidence testifying to that. But the Sadducees didn't believe that the angel, that angels existed. And in the irony of the text and in God's plan, he uses an angel to set the apostles free. Second thing you have to love here is the um, details that Luke includes and omits. We're told that an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. But what the officers will come to find in the morning is that the prison was shut securely, or to use language from another rendering, it was securely locked. Which makes me just wonder, like, did the angel like, open up the gate and then just lock it? That's kind of the impression that you get because they they find it perfectly locked, perfectly sealed. As a matter of fact, you'll see in a moment, the guards are still standing there. So somehow, in some way, with the guards standing there, this angel gets all 12 of the apostles out of prison and he does it with ease. Nobody thwarts him. Nobody stops him. Nobody even knows that he has done it until they find out later on. What is this teaching you? This is meant to teach you, likely what it was meant to teach the apostles, at least this in part. God was in charge. There are plenty of examples in the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, and in church history, where God would do things like this. Right? He rescued Daniel from the lion's den. How? By shutting the mouth of the lions. Right? He could do that with ease. He could do that in a bunch of cases. Later on in the book of Acts, we're going to see that Peter would be deliver, delivered via an angel from the hands of Herod. I already told you that Paul was delivered from prison via an earthquake. But it's a good reminder that God doesn't always do that. He didn't always do it in the Old Testament and he doesn't always do it in the New Testament. Stephen in Acts chapter 7, he is going to be martyred. He is going to be stoned for his faith. James, who was delivered this time, is going to be arrested in Acts chapter 12 and he won't be delivered from prison that time. He will be beheaded, die by the sword under Herod. And I think this is a good reminder to us that God can open prison doors any moment that He pleases. But He doesn't always do it that way. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is this. God is in control. And when He does open prison doors, He's in control. And when He doesn't open prison doors, He's in control. So when he has one of his saints die because they are being martyred in Jesus' name, being burned at the stake, for instance, as so many martyrs in history have been, he is in control and he is right there, not indifferent to the suffering of his people, and he's ready to welcome them into his everlasting kingdom forever. And then when he does other things, like for example with Adoniram Judson, he was a missionary to the people of Burma. The the people of Burma, the Burmese government, perceive him to be a spy and they arrest him as they did many other Westerners. He's working on translating the scriptures for these people because he wants them to know the word of God. He gets arrested, he gets thrown into prison, and he's there for about a year and a half. Estimates are 17 months, that's what I've commonly seen. I've even seen as high as 19 months, but he's in a prison in harrowing circumstances, where other inmates are dying, where people are becoming emaciated, suffering from fever and so on. His prison guard uh, was basically, they were like torturers in many ways. There's even one account in his uh, biography of the um, prison guard bringing in a lion and having the lion in a cage and having the lion starved because they wanted to make the lion hungry to eat the prisoners. But in God's providence, they starved the lion to death and they weren't able to do that. Well, he's in prison for about a year and a half, but then in God's providence, there comes a point where there is peace negotiations between the Burmese government and England. And he gets set free to be a translator for the government. So God could use circumstances like that and he can get one of his people out of prison to continue the work, and he did. And he finished translating the scriptures for those people, but then there'll be other times when he will have his people be there. Paul knew what it was like to be in prison and get out, and Paul knew what it was like to be in prison and then to go and die under Nero's call for him to be executed. I say that because, regardless of where God's people are, they are not so much victims of wicked men's cruelty as they are ambassadors positioned according to his sovereignty. God is in control. Third, I want you to look at the surprising imperative. Did you catch this in verse 20? The angel sets them free, and you might think, oh great, the angel is getting them out of trouble. They're out of prison. Now they can go run and hide and be safe. It's not what the angel says. The angel doesn't tell them to make a break for it and flee for safety. This escape wasn't about ease. You know what this escape was about? It was about evangelism. You're out of prison... So that you can go into temple courts and keep preaching and you know what they're going to do. They're probably going to bring you back to prison or they're going to do something else to you. But you're, you're set free to embrace a whole nother line of danger. I just set you free from danger so that you can go embrace a whole nother line of danger. Because there's a priority that's even greater than your safety. It's making known the words of this life. Look at what the angel tells the apostles to do. Go stand in the temple. Don't run and hide, go stand in the temple, the temple grounds and speak to the people all the words of this life. All the words of this life. I love that language. Remember Jesus himself said, "I am the way, the truth and the life." Peter told Jesus that he alone spoke the words of eternal life, John 6:68. 6, Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life, John chapter 11, verse 25. John, at the end of his gospel, said that the truth that he declared to them was so that they might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John, at the end of his epistle, says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. So when the angel tells the apostles, go preach all the words of this life, he's basically saying, go preach the gospel. Go preach about Jesus Christ being resurrected from the dead. Go preach about him being the son of God who died for sinners like, like all of you, all of, me, like all of me, people who have sinned against God. I was going to say all of us, but the angel couldn't say it like that. He was, they were called to go preach all the words of this life to make known to people that there is forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And I want you to see, this would be costly. I don't want to give away the story, but you can just read ahead, so I might as well tell you. If you go to the end of the chapter, they are going to be beaten severely because of this. Beaten with a mode of beating that many people succumbed to and died under. And I think this is instructive for us. You and I may not be called to suffer imprisonment, while translating the scriptures like Adoniram Judson was. But I just want to remind you, don't forget, you are called to make known the words of this life as well. Part of what you're called to do, if you're like, I love Jesus. I believe He died for my sins. I know I'm not good enough to get into heaven. I know I've sinned against the holy God. I believe that God sent His Son and He's the hero of the story. I'm not getting in by my supposed self-righteousness. I'm only getting in because God, by His grace, opened my eyes to see that Jesus live the perfect life that I can never live, and He died in my place and rose from the grave. If you believe that, you are called to make that known. However you can make it known. And Christ's worth far exceeds whatever the cost may be. Well, they heard the command of the angel, but what would the apostles do? Would they obey the high priest who put them in prison, or would they heed the angel who just got them out of prison and gave them an imperative from God? Look at verse 21. Verse 21. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. So I want you to see here in verse 21 the picture that's being painted. In verse 21 you have the first picture that's painted, the apostles. They're set free from prison, probably around daybreak where worshipers would begin to enter into the temple precincts, and there they are. And what are they doing? They're teaching and they're preaching the words of this life. They showed that the Great Commission was a greater priority than physical safety. And something you could miss here is that this also was an answer to prayer. Remember, they prayed for boldness in Acts chapter 4, verse 29. And believe me, it took some boldness to stand there in the temple courts and to do what they were doing, knowing that it was just a matter of time until they got arrested again. God gave them boldness. He promised that they would be endued with power from on high, but they still needed to pray. And they prayed for boldness, and here we're reminded that God answers prayer. No, He doesn't always do everything we want. Like I told you last week, He is not like this big vending machine in the sky, where if we pray a certain way, do a certain thing, we put in you know, our prayer, as it were, and we get out what we want. It doesn't work that way. He's sovereign. He's a benevolent Father. He knows what's best for His people. There will be things that you ask Him for, and it's not in your best interest to have those things. But there will be things that you ask for, like the way they ask for boldness, and he will, in his time, grant those things. This was an answer to prayer. But watch this, the scene shifts. Second half of the verse, the scene shifts, and the high priest, all those who are with him, the council. You get the sense that this was a big deal, because it's not only the high priest and the council, but if you look towards the end of verse 21, we're told, "...and all the elders, or with all the elders of the children of Israel." So these different elders who served perhaps in judicial capacities throughout the land of Israel, had different responsibilities, they were esteemed and so on, they are there and this whole group is ready to conduct their wicked business under the guise of being defenders of orthodoxy. So they send to have the apostles brought from prison, you can imagine them sitting down, getting ready to start their day, the first case of the day, maybe the only case of the day. They're getting ready, but they were in for a surprise. Look at verses 22 through 25. But when the officers came and did not find them in prison, they returned. Quick note there, by the way. If, my opinion is, if this were ever made into like an animated, you know, episode of Superbook, ever did like an episode of this or something, this would probably be one of the moments where like the officers who went to the prison and didn't see the apostles in prison are depicted as walking back saying to one another like, uh-oh, I don't think the Sanhedrin are going to be too happy about this. Why don't you tell them? You t- you're going to tell them what we saw and so on. I could imagine some banter happening between the officers. They go. They don't find the apostles in prison. They return, end of verse 22, and reported, now verse 23 and on, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guard standing outside the doors... But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and are teaching the people. You Imagine this. They're going to get the apostles, and they get there. Doors locked? Check. Guards present? Checked. Apostles? No check. They're just not there. So they come back. They tell the high priest. Uh, they tell the captain of the temple. He's the one who's in charge of the, uh, the Levite guards and so on. The chief priest. They all wondered what would become of this. The word for wondered there is a Greek word. Diapareo. Which means that they were greatly perplexed. They were at a loss. This is didn't know like, what, what could happen. Like how could that happen? What is going on here? And I just want to say they missed the point. They were greatly perplexed when they ought to have been greatly repentant. What should this have reminded them of? The empty tomb. tomb. They should have been putting pieces of the puzzle together. Wait a minute. This kind of thing is happening again? We've been down this road before. We remember that time when we had the prison, we had the, we had the tomb uh, securely guarded and so on, and then that tomb was found empty. And then they should have started putting the pieces of the puzzle together. They should have said, wait a minute. And the apostles were used to heal that lame man. He was like 40 years old. We saw him like just about like every day when we were coming to the temple. And they should have been putting together what Peter had said, some of the scriptures that he quoted, and said, okay, there's more going on here than what we realized. And that should have led them to repent and say we have been so wrong about who Jesus is. But instead they're just wondering why the cell's empty. But you know what? I'll tell you what. I can't say this with definitude, but I do think that this was happening for some that perhaps God was opening the eyes of some in the priesthood to come to saving faith in Christ. Why do I say that? Because in the very next chapter, not many verse, verses away, Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we are told, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So maybe the Acts was being taken to the root of their unbelief even now. Like, okay, something's going on here. Maybe God regenerated some in this moment. Maybe they would be regenerated later. But some would come to know Christ. But as of right now, we're told they were wondering what the outcome would be. This wasn't run-of-the-mill stuff. And as they're wondering this, you have to love the way this all kind of plays out, somebody comes in and says, We found them! Okay, you found them. Where are they? They're preaching in the temple grounds. Verse 26 says, Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. So the captain gather some officers, and he goes to bring the apostles back in without violence, without force. And why do they do that? Because they're just nice guys? No. Because they feared the people. Because they knew that the people esteemed the apostles, and they said, if the people see us like gathering these men together with force or with violence, they're going to see us as adversaries and as enemies, and they may very well stone us. And you have to love what the apostles didn't do here. The apostles would have perceived that too. But they didn't use that to their advantage and say to the people, you see what these guys are doing? You think that's right? What say we teach them a lesson? They didn't do that. They followed the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who when He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, for instance, He went when He was arrested. And He didn't start a riot He submitted under the ordinance of his heavenly father. They brought the apostles back without violence. And then look at verses 27 and 28. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And again, I tell you, this is like standing before the supreme court of the land. And the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you to not teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. So first, the high priest recalls what they were told earlier. The council had told them, picking up in Acts 4 verse 18, that they were commanded to not speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. As I told you earlier, the apostles said that's not an option for us. They weren't being mean. They weren't being like rude. They were just telling the truth. Like, we, we have to keep speaking. But their words to the apostles at this point showed that their actions, the religious leaders, their actions were futile. Look what they said. The apostles filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. William MacDonald noted, This was an unintentional compliment to the effectiveness of the apostles' ministry. It's like you guys have been successful, and we were unsuccessful in trying to stop you. Frank Allen, I thought, also made a good note. He said, It's interesting to note how throughout the ages, different methods have been taken by different kings or governments to silence the messengers of God and how they have failed. God's word will continue to live in the face of all opposition, and there will always be witnesses who are ready to proclaim it. I mean, I told you already at the beginning of the message. Many governments, communist governments, socialist governments, you go back in the days of the different Roman emperors, many have tried to silence the word of God and to silence the people of God. But like an anvil that has withstood many hammer blows, so the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been. And he will always have people around preaching his name. Notice also how the high priest, look at this in the text, he can't even bring himself to say the name of Jesus. Did you catch that? He said, did we not strictly command you to not teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. won't even say it. He just won't even bring himself to say the name of Jesus. That last statement, in, you intend to bring this man's blood on us, was a way of saying you intend to have us be accountable and guilty of Jesus' death. Perhaps there was, as one commentator noted, both a hint of scorn and fear, Fearing the guilt of bloodshed, innocent bloodshed, and the bloodshed of the Messiah. And as you're going to see, the apostles do not shy away from speaking the truth. We'll see that when we get there, Lord willing, next week. But I want to close today by calling your attention to this. Peter had stood before this council before with John. And in that council session, he declared to them. He said, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel... That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you have crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, speaking of the lame man, this man stands here before you whole. Then he goes on and he speaks about Jesus saying, this is the stone, the prophesied stone from Psalm 118. This is the stone that you, the builders, rejected. And then he goes on to say, nor is there salvation in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They didn't shy back. The Sanhedrin heard there's only one way. God has made one way of escape. Like in the days of Noah when there was one way to flee the flood that was coming. So now there is one way to flee the wrath that is coming. It is Jesus Christ. He had told them that. And now he's here in this moment, the Sanhedrin and so on, and they don't even want to say the name of Jesus. They don't want Jesus' blood brought upon them as it were. And I think there's a sad irony here. And that's this, that the shed blood of Jesus could actually lead to the forgiveness of wrongfully shedding Jesus' blood. How significant and sufficient and powerful is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ? It could forgive whatever your sins are. Even if you were like the Sanhedrin and you put the Son of God to death. His death was enough to forgive you of that sin. What grace! I don't know what you've done. I don't know what your history is. But I can tell you this, that in Christ Jesus, if you come to him, every one of those sins can be forgiven in the blink of an eye. You go from death to life and every one of them gets cast into the sea of forgetfulness. And then you'll marvel at his grace because you're going to see this. When you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, sadly, you don't stop sinning. You will sin less, but you won't be sinless this side of eternity. And then you marvel at grace that paid not only for your past sins, but for your present sins and your future sins. And it makes you love him all the more. He's not some religious icon that you just subscribed to. He's the living Savior who died for you. Yeah. And you become enthralled with him. You love him. You love the Father who sent his Son. You love the Son who gave himself. And you love the Spirit who opened your eyes. The one true God who is one in essence and three in persons. Yeah. Sad irony again. Sad irony is they won't even say the name of Jesus. But there was no other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved. They needed to confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. So I close today by saying, please do not do what the council did. What did the council do? One of the things that they didn't do, which is what they did, they refused to acknowledge their sin. We don't want you bringing his blood upon us rather than just saying we are guilty. We partook in having him have his blood shed wrongly. So don't make that mistake. Know that the Bible has said all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. Acknowledge that you have sinned. And that's called repentance. That's where repentance begins. You kind of have a change of heart towards your own sin. You confess it to God. You have a different disposition towards your sin and so on. And I would encourage you to name names. Don't just repent in some general way. Name names. Lord, I am so sorry. I have lied. I am so sorry I have taken your name in vain. I am so sorry I have been sexually immoral. I am so sorry that I've put you as a distant second in my life for years. I'm so sorry that I've thought for so long that you were one option among many. Name names. Come to the living God and name those names. You don't want to. None of us want to. When you think about what you've done before you knew Christ or even since knowing Christ, it's a horrible thing to think of sinning against the holy God. Our sins deserve the righteous, holy judgment of the doctrine of hell, the lake of fire. But I'm telling you, humble yourself before God and say, I have sinned. But then rejoice at the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. Don't do what they did. The high priest wouldn't even mention his name. This man's blood, this name. Don't make that mistake. I'm encouraging you right now. Believe and confess Jesus as Lord. Don't view Jesus' blood like they did, fearing that it would only bring them guilt. When the irony was, his shed blood was the only way to bring them forgiveness. And his shed blood is the only way you and I can have forgiveness. There's more to learn We have the reaction of the apostles, and you'll see, Lord willing, next week, God delivered the apostles this time by a miracle, but next time he's going to use providence. We'll see that, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we thank you that we can come and by your grace confess with our mouths, having believed in our hearts, that Jesus is Lord. And we come not based upon our own merits, Lord. We know that in and of ourselves, we are sinners. We don't boast of our righteousness, Lord. We boast about your Son and our Savior. He is the hero. Thank you. Thank you for your Son's blood being shed for sinners like us. Thank you, Father, for all that we're taught in this text. Thank you that you are in control. Wherever we find ourselves, you are in control, mindful of your people. Father, thank you, Lord, that you can give us boldness, even as you gave the apostles boldness to preach your word. And I pray, Father, for all who are in this place, that you would give them such boldness, even when conflict comes for Jesus' sake. Help them, by your grace, to stand and make known all the words of life in Christ. Oh, thank you for raising us up from spiritual deadness to newness of life that we did not inherit or merit or deserve in and of ourselves but by your grace. So Father, may we grow. Uh, Having been taught by your word today, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.